Hi, hello, and welcome back. Thank you for your patience, if you're listening to this in real time. Uh, It's been a couple weeks since I released an episode. Usually this podcast has been formatted uh, more as a conversation, with sort of an intro and an outro done by me. Unfortunately, I'm not a very experienced sound editor, and I messed up. For this episode, we'll be improvising a little bit. I found out after recording this that maybe my mic wasn't plugged in properly, or there was something going on on my end, so we have Adam's responses to my questions, but unfortunately we don't have any of my conversation. But I found this conversation to be really exciting and informative, and I enjoyed the nostalgic element of it. For context, our next guest will be Adam Casper. He was my Native Studies teacher in grade 12. You may think that a high school teacher might be an odd choice for a podcast guest. And I would agree if I went to a regular high school that was taught by regular teachers. But lucky for me, uh, I went to an arts high school. And honestly, I feel a little bit odd, even just as a a 22-year-old kind of gushing about my high school experience. But my high school teachers um, were pretty odd. Once I was barred from the, the third floor after class, while I was waiting for my mom to pick me up because my teachers were uh, decorating the halls to look like the house from Duck Dynasty. Um, I think it was Halloween, and they were going to be Duck Dynasty, and I was interrupting their very elaborate and very secret decoration plans. So, I, yeah, my, my teachers, you'll see. Mr. Casper is an incredibly intelligent and well-spoken and super interesting guy. And I'm really excited to have him on the podcast to talk about his uh, education specialties in Native Studies and Sustainable Tourism. And my first questions for Adam were regarding the class that I took with him, the Native Studies classes, and um, just how that class came to be, how he came to be the one to teach it, and um, a little bit about the curriculum as well. So, let's do it! With that particular course, it was... I I chose I I created it all myself um, for the most part. There wasn't much um, curriculum to go with. Um, it was a very old curriculum. They were trying to. It was right around the time of um, when Stephen Harper apologized to Indigenous communities, and we're trying and the beginning of reconciliation. And there wasn't um, a lot of education of non-Indigenous people about those issues, right? Um, so the whole the whole point of the course was to educate non-Indigenous Canadians, and the curriculum it was based on was from when I was back in high school. So it was so old, it was outdated, it was stereotypical. So the teachers that were asked to teach it really had to come up with uh, the ideas on uh, the ideas on their own. And in my case, I used my personal experience. That's why I was asked to teach the course to begin with. So my travels around the world and my experiences. I tried to bring that in, so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you said you enjoyed taking the course because that was my passion, was to try and bring the world as best I could to you through those lessons. Um, well, when just teaching teaching that subject was, I was trying to embrace and, and show that inequality and the, and the stereotypes and the, the sort of prejudice that existed with Indigenous people, not only in Canada, but around the world. And I was coming at it from a lens of being, being white, being non-Indigenous myself, um, and not taught these things when I was in school, and being on that learning journey myself. 
that I came to learn these things and was horrified by them and was disturbed by them that this happened in my country that I was proud to live in. And same as the countries I traveled to, it happened in those places like Australia and New Zealand. And I wanted to come to it from that perspective. Very similar to what's happening in, in the United States right now and around the world with these, with these riots um, for George Floyd. is It's not just those people. It's not just um, the people that have been oppressed that are rising up. It's the people around them that didn't realize that oppression was happening or either were ignorant to it, whatever it was. It's now here. It's in your face. And that's that was the base of my lessons is to be a responsible citizen of the country you live in, understand and learn to hopefully make positive change. So that, um, without sounding too wordy, that's what the basis of all of my lessons were in that. Drive home the point um, that Adam made at the end of designing the courses that he taught around the hope of teaching responsible citizenship. I don't think enough people see it learning the experiences and traumas of indigenous peoples as a responsible citizenship for their country, which I think it's, a, it's an excellent point that Adam made. Um, but I know, at least from my own personal experience, prior to taking Mr. Casper's, and I, I, think, I'm, <laughs> I think it's evident that I'm going to go back and forth between Adam and Mr. Casper, um, because although he's no longer my high school teacher, so it, it is, uh, I guess, proper when introducing him to a nebulous amount of listeners to, to refer to him by his first name, but my experience with reconciliation was really, why is it still necessary? Um, it's been so many hundred years since these this has happened. You know, when will this be enough? And uh, that's a very flawed argument when it comes to the concept of reconciliation. That's really not the, the angle that it should be taken from. Mr. Casper goes into a couple reasons why this this kind of thinking might be might be so prevalent, outside of just, you know, racism. First of all, I think our society is incredibly impatient. We'll see and learn about an issue and want it fixed immediately or think it can be fixed immediately. And I think it's just that's just what we've come to be. We're so used to just getting things resolved quickly. And we have to come to understand that these things, the reconciliation is a long, long road. It won't actually be, it won't happen in our lifetime. But it's our responsibility to continue to sow those seeds of reconciliation, whatever stage it's in, and continue to sort of, you know, feed the plants that are growing um, from that, whatever stage we're in. This is going to take generations to fix, and the responsibility will continue. Um, so what you're saying about this, uh, you know, we think it's a thing of the past. We can, we have to get we have to get away from that and 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 continue on with it constantly, definitely, definitely. And you know you. You see the protests that have been happening, you know, right now for racial inequality in the States. We're about two weeks in and they're still happening. This is, again, just the beginning um, of paying that attention to it and allowing it, allowing the system itself to change and, and turning the lens on in ourselves and figuring out what has to change for this to be solved, right? I'd like to take a moment here to reconciliation in a more concrete way because it is a term that gets thrown around a lot in regards to present issues. It's really it's really not a term to be thrown around lightly. I'm sure that if my first experience with reconciliation was taught to me through formal education, that there are certainly listeners out there who may not know what reconciliation means um, in the present sense. And so reconciliation as a general definition 
is just the restoring of friendly relations between two groups, I think is the, the Google definition. But um, in regards to Canada, reconciliation is very complicated. The traumas that Indigenous people in Canada have experienced have been happening 400 years, really. Residential schools existed within my own lifetime, and I'm quite young. People are facing the intergenerational traumas of those experiences, and, and there are absolutely modern concerns when it comes to the treatment of. The disappearances and murders of Indigenous women and youth are so prevalent in Canada. We have incredible racism problems here, and for for reconciliation to really take root, these modern concerns also need to be taken into account. If you're interested in learning more about reconciliation in Canada, in 2015, there was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that released a report um, offering 94 calls to action in regards to how to achieve reconciliation within Canada. And um, that's an excellent place, it's a little wordy, and we could spend the rest of this episode and many more episodes talking about reconciliation, but for this particular conversation. After these points were made, we moved on to our next topic of the definition of sustainable tourism. Sustainable tourism is, it's, a, it's a based on, of course, the concept of sustainable development. You know, the, the, fact, the whole premise that something can continue at its current rate for an indefinite amount of time. Um, and tourism is based on that because you can think of, you know, in order to understand, you have to think of what is unsustainable tourism. It's the, the type of tourism where, you know, a place becomes really popular and then many people flood to that place, but they don't take care of the garbage and the waste. So the, the ocean starts to get polluted or the human waste from the resorts or whatever it was ends up being in the water and it's polluted. Um, that, that model of tourism growth was unsustainable and many communities that went on that uh, model, you know, it really affected their long-term, lo- their, their longevity in the tourism industry. So this idea sprung up. It really came out of Costa Rica originally. Um, the concept of ecotourism, which is basically now an arm of sustainable tourism, which looks at using um, the tourist who is there to spend money and learn, um, to, to learn about the culture, to learn about the environment, the natural environment. And then in turn, leave that experience with a value of that place and, and, and a connection to that place that they want that place to be protected so that their kids will see it one day and then their kids will see it one day. Um, that's the whole idea of what uh, sustainable tourism is, is that people care about those places in our world, um, if that makes sense. And Adam goes on to explain some personal examples of unsustainable tourism and how you can do your part. I mean, yes, I have countless examples. Two come to mind that always break my heart whenever I think of them, of places I went, fell in love with them, went back just a few years later, and they were absolutely a different place, dirty, just trashed by tourists. And and the locals, too, who were trying to feed this demand for tourism. One was um, the Perenchian Islands in Malaysia, um, we had gone scuba diving there in 1998, and by 2003, when we went back, the reefs were so badly damaged. There was garbage all in the ocean. There was no regulations for people taking things from the reef, breaking off pieces, and it was it was very very sad. It really moved me, and it happened again just three years ago. Um, a place that we fell in love with when we lived overseas was a. Um, we would travel to Boracay Island in the Philippines. Pristine, beautiful white sand beaches. 
and no buildings over two stories. It was it was a, it was those tropical par- paradises that you imagine. And they had to close the island uh, about a year and a half ago for four months to clean it up because it had become a cesspool. And every time I think of those places, it just brings a tear to my eye. What we can do to places and not care for them. It's, it's, it's frightening. Of course, the teacher in me will say education, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being, a, being, a, being an educated tourist is so important. And, and doing your research, you know, going beyond just picking up a brochure from a travel agent that has great pictures and it looks awesome and you book it and you go there. Um, getting way deeper than that and understanding the place you're visiting, first of all. Um, thinking about the choices you'll make when you do travel to those places, whether you're going to go independently, you know, book your own stay, which is so much easier to do now with all these different websites, what you're going to eat when you're there and what you're going to buy, you know, making sure it's locally focused because that's really what sustainable tourism is. Tourism can only be sustained if the people involved in it are benefiting from it. So if you're traveling, let's say, to Mexico and the resort you're staying in is owned by an American company or a British company or some other company in Europe and the majority of the employees are imported from another place because they can get them cheaper. This is these are things that happen, right? Those locals are not going to be benefiting from tourism and are, are not going to be connected to it. And that can't be sustained. So understanding, you know, this those basics. Where is the place you're staying? Who owns it? And making those choices. Now, you can never be perfect. You're not going to find a one hundred percent place well you, there might be some but it's very hard to find 100 locally owned operated and all those things but it's ones that are moving in that direction um, in one of my courses i teach about the caribbean and i think out of every tourism dollar spent in the caribbean only 17 cents stays in the caribbean that means 93 or sorry 83 cents i'm not a math teacher so uh, <laughs> 83 cents is going somewhere else in the world that's that's not going to be sustainable in the long run for that local place. Um, for those, those locals need to be involved. So um, understanding those. So I there's there's many different organizations. The Ecotourism Society is a good one. Um, sustainable Tourism Alliances. And you do your research and look at them. Rainforest Alliance and they rate they rank them based on principles of ownership and if the locals are involved in running the organization, if locals are employed as tour guides, as workers, all of those things. Um, so, for example, this past, uh, we were lucky enough, right before COVID, we took a family vacation. I've got three kids. Uh, my wife and I wanted to go on a more of a relaxing vacation, not our typical thing. We wanted to go to a resort. And it took a while, but we did find a place in Mexico in, on the Mayan Riviera that was um, sustainable. It was called the Sandoz Caracol Eco Resort, and it was very, very. It was impressive. I was impressed with all the things that they they were employing there to make sure that they were having the smallest and most minimal impact on the environment they could. That's what it takes to be a tourist is is caring, right? Not just on the trip. It's a wide range of people traveling there. You know, people there were there just for the resort thing and they actually didn't care so much about the sustainable thing and, and there's people like us as well which was neat to see but they had a vegan restaurant which was i could not believe i found a vegan restaurant at a resort in mexico excellent food and things like that so yeah we were we were quite happy to find that that was the hardest in 2016 i took my wife and i took a semester off of teaching and we took our kids for 
five months. To, we did two and a half months in Central America and two and a half months in the United States. But much easier when you're traveling independently to find sustainable places. Um, you know, booking your own accommodations and things like that. I didn't. I don't actually find that that hard. Trickiest part with sustainability is the whole concept of a resort. Because you think about it, it is mass tourism. It's lots of people coming to one place. But to make that sustainable is tricky. Yeah, and that's maybe, that's that's why I was happy to find this resort. Because if more and more get on board with this, um, they'll realize that model works. Right? It can work. If you, like me, are dreaming about your future travels that may have gotten cancelled because of COVID, and if you happen to be, you know, planning for that, uh, I'll be linking in the accompanying blog for this post on thecrowsnest.substack.org if you are listening on a different platform. The organizations that Adam mentioned, the Rainforest Alliance and the Ecotourism Society, to learn more about sustainable travel and how to practice it in your own life. And then from here on out, Adam and I talk about his personal traveling experiences. He's been to quite a few countries and um, the weirdest, one of the weirdest stories that I've ever heard. For background, Mr. Casper's class was um, full of anecdotal stories from his travels. The, the story you're about to hear is sort of the magnum opus of all of his travel stories. Okay. Yeah, so this whole, the whole, everything we're going through with COVID is, it's kind of like we, we're, our kids and I, we've, or we've all been reflecting on, it's like our trip, the way we've been doing schooling. Um, you know, a lot of hands-on learning and outside doing things. We do our little lessons and then we were out in the garden and things like that. It was the same when we were traveling. We, my wife and I call it road schooling. Um, you know, we'd be in national parks or we'd be at museums and that would be our school for the day, right? Learning about history one day or science another day. And it was, it was brilliant. It was so amazing. Yeah, uh, it's, it's the, obviously it comes with its challenges, but I think helped us be, you know, ready for that. You know, I think not a lot of families have had opportunity to, or, or, or have to be together so closely for so long. And, you know, we're used to it. We're always, <laughs> the five of us are always living in close quarters, whether it be in our, you know, our small camper van to, we've been used to it. So we've kind of, I feel like we had training coming into this and we we're okay. I don't talk about it much either. It's funny. I just sort of talk, it's one of those things. Traveling is, we talk about it too much. You can distance yourselves from people, right? Because <laughs> uh, you're having a very different experience than they're having. So I, I, I actually lost count of how many countries we traveled to. Somewhere in the 60s, maybe getting close to 70 or something like that. But the majority of the traveling we've done has been very, well, it's been sustainable type of travel, right? Like we, we immerse ourselves in the places we're going. So, for example, in Australia, when we lived there, we bought a car uh, that we converted into a camper van and we visited I think well over 75 different national parks over two years now. my actual like thesis or I did my master's of sustainable tourism in Australia was on national park tourism so that was just an incredible experience and then of course uh, I taught overseas in Singapore for for two years and Singapore is one of the greatest hub cities in the world it's so close to so many places uh so we traveled extensively while living in singapore um we would you know after school on a friday go to train station or a bus station even fly to different parts of the world and uh, that was pretty pretty amazing to be able to do and then on top of it you know i did two around the world backpacking trips 
well with my with my wife. My wife and I have done all of our traveling together, so that's something that you know been pretty pretty amazing to share together. We always say we can't get divorced because we have way too much baggage, literally. <laughs> yeah, we have way too much baggage from all the trips and traveling that we've done together. But it's obviously made us grow a lot together as well. I know we have moments where we will we'll be sitting in our backyard and just think about a place, you know, and it just. It'll, one of us will think about it and be like, wow, do you remember that place or that experience? And it, it is great to have someone to be able to share that with. I, um, well, I mean, probably the favorite of, it's one of my favorites, but it's become a legendary story at Eastwood is my Russian mafia story. I don't think, I don't think anybody who's ever taken my class can forget that story. And I, it's just my favorite, so I'll share that one if that's okay. Okay, so this one starts. It was actually my second second trip to Russia. Um, my first trip, my, my family um, heritage on my grandfather's side comes from Russia. They're Russian Mennonite. And uh, when we were coming home from Singapore, we actually ended up taking the Trans-Siberian Express. We, well, we actually detoured through Mongolia, but we traveled through Russia. Within a year after being the first time, my grandfather and I decided to travel there. It was his 80th birthday and my 30th birthday. So we celebrated together and went to Russia. And he he lived on, or he was actually legally blind. Um, and so he required, of course, a lot of assistance when traveling. So we ended up taking one of these uh, uh, river cruises. Not a typical thing I would travel on, but I thought a great experience to do with my grandfather. Traveled from Moscow to St. Petersburg along the Volga River and that river system. And uh, so we flew into Moscow and got all set. We had our jet lagged and things like that. And my grandfather needed a rest. And uh, um, so he laid down on, the, on this little riverboat we were staying on. And uh, I told him, I said, I'm going to go into town because I want to buy a souvenir, one that I didn't get my first time in Russia. And that was a T-shirt from the 1980 Olympics when they were in Moscow. And if people don't remember, that's when uh, there was a boycott of those Olympics from the Americans and Canadians, and they didn't go. So I thought the first time I was there, I saw that shirt and didn't get it. It was one of those souvenirs I forgot to get. So I was like, oh, this is a great opportunity. I'm going to get that souvenir. And my grandfather said, perfect, you know, you go for it. I'm going to have a nap. So I went to the first, the, one of the, basically the tour director and asked, where's a good place to find this T-shirt? So she, she directed me to an area of Moscow called the Arbat. And it's a tourist kind of area. You should find that shirt there. And as I was as I was getting ready to go, there was another couple. They were actually from Montreal that uh, heard me saying I wanted to go shopping. And they said, oh, can we join you? Let's go together. So I thought, perfect. It's better than being alone. We took the subway in. Moscow's subway system, by the way, is the, the most beautiful in the world. It's designed by Stalin. It is absolutely magnificent took the train in and got to the area and uh, we did our shopping i found the t-shirt and i came came back uh, to the and looked for the couple that i was there with and i said hey, i found the shirt and i found the, the husband his name was pierre and i said look i got my shirt and we were talking and suddenly i felt someone come up behind me and grab my neck and i was like looked around and it was the police and i, I was really sort of taken aback i'm like what did the police want with me like I haven't done anything wrong, and I'm legally here. Like, totally stereotypical Russian police, very intimidating, and was asking me for my passport, me and here and I for our passports. And both and I were like, both both of us thought, no, that's no big deal. We've got our passports. Then we realized we don't have our passports, because when you stay on the riverboats, they keep the passports locked on a safe as you go through these different places. But I was a smart traveler, 
uh, taken the advice of the Canadian government, and I made photocopies of my passport and carried them with me at all times. When I pulled out the photocopy, took one look at it, and and I remember watching it as it sort of slowly sunk and hit the hit the bricks uh, of this cobblestone streetway. And and he looked at me and he said, "Those are no good." <laughs> and I was like, "What do you mean they're not good? Those are." a photocopy of my passport and he was like you need your real passport and i was like well i don't have my real passport and you know my they tell they tell you your instincts you know follow your instincts and i had a thought that ran through my mind that said run and i didn't run so i guess i did follow my instincts and i'm glad i did that because that would have been really terrible to just start running away from police but i knew i was now in a bad situation because i'd heard these stories of police can be corrupt and they started taking Pierre and I down this alley and they said, you know, now you pay, you pay us. Basically, they're asking us to, brought to pay them to let us, let us uh, go. We we're just get, about to get our wallets out and they start yelling at each other in their faces, these two police officers, and they run away. And, and we look at each other like, what happened? And we look at the top of the alley and Pierre's wife was taking a photo of these men about to, to basically take our money. And they knew what was happening, so they ran away. We came out of that alley, and we were just so excited that she saved us. And we were like, you saved us so much money and all these things. And we started walking. We are like, let's get out of here. So we started walking back towards the train. And as we are walking, uh, more police officers were in this area. And these were different ones. And they came, and we tried to avoid them, but they came right at us again. And they did the same thing. They asked, where are your passports? And I said... <laughs> such a roller coaster we were like so up high that we had got through this now we're back down low we're, we're upset about this and again a crazy thing happened out of nowhere this man comes he's wearing a black suit black sunglasses and grabs one of the police officers and punches him totally knocks this guy out and the other two scatter and the guy comes right into our faces and was like you get out of this area the police are dangerous and <laughs> you know i have to say in that moment as that guy in black suit came at me after he had punched and assaulted a police officer i thought i was next like there was not many moments in my life where i felt more fear and he said get out of here so of course we listened we just ran we ran to the train so we get back to the the boat and the lady that the tour director that told us where to go she's like oh did you find your shirt i was like yeah i found a shirt but then we almost got robbed by the police and she's like oh i forgot to tell you that you really have to be careful and I was like, yeah, that would have been really good information to have before we went. And so we told her this whole story about what had happened and how this man came and saved us. And she just, her, she went like ashen faced. And we were like, what's wrong? She's like, you saw this? Like this happened? He was like, yeah, this man saved us. And she was like, that's the mafia. That's the Russian mafia. They own all of the tourist shops in that part of Moscow. And the police have been robbing tourists and they're upset at them. So they've been policing the police. But I was saved by the Russian mafia. Yes. I owe, <laughs> that's not someone I really prefer to owe though. It is, it's a legendary story for sure. And I still am in awe that it happened. And there is photographic evidence. So if you do need me to send you a photo to, uh, to back it up, I can send you the photo that was taken of them, um, interrogating us. I can send that to you. Okay. Honestly, I have no way to like neatly conclude that story. It, it was one of the craziest things I had heard as a 17-year-old in his class. One, It remains one of the craziest things that I hear uh, to this day. And and then uh, as we were wrapping up this interview, I just asked Adam um, if there was any message that he really wanted to convey or leave us off with. And this is what he had to say. I would just say, like, as a, you know, as a, as a tourist, that, I mean, right now is not a, a 
great time to talk about sustainable tourism, international tourism at least. Um, well, it is a good time to talk about it, but obviously travel right now, that the tourism industry is being absolutely decimated right now. And it, we are going to come out of this and see a totally different industry. I don't know what it's going to look like, but what we need out of it are responsible tourists. So for, for your listeners or people that are, are thinking of traveling, be a conscientious and be a conscious tourist. Think about where you're traveling, the impact that you have. Make those choices ahead of time. Um, that will make sure you are traveling in a sustainable manner, whether it be staying locally, you know, supporting locally owned hotels and resorts if you can, or as locally owned as possible. Eating locally, you know, avoiding the big chain restaurants in places that you go as tempting as they can be. You know, try and find locally owned restaurants. That's where the best food is anyway. And the souvenirs that you buy. Think about those souvenirs like it's nothing gets me more riled up than going to a souvenir shop even here in Canada like I remember being out in BC and you go to a tourist shop and all of the sort of um, things they're selling are not even locally made like totem poles are a great example um, we were out in Haida Gwaii two summers ago one of my lifeless places we traveled to Haida Gwaii and um, which is where totem poles are from from the from the Haida people and you go to the tourist shops outside of Haida Gwaii in most of British Columbia, and they're selling totem poles, but they're all made in China. And, you know, yeah, and it was such a huge deal for me to try and find an actual totem pole made by the indigenous Haida people. And it shouldn't be that way. Um, but if you do care, you should be the person asking. And the more we ask, the more those tourist shops will think, well, people are asking for this, and we're going to need to be supplying those things, right? Um, and making that the, the norm for people. Uh, so being that being that conscientious tourist, I think, is really important. That's what I would like to leave the listeners with: is is, is thinking about those things when you travel. Yeah, for his, his, uh, for his last point, um, I think Adam makes an, an excellent point that um, as a traveler, once COVID restrictions start lifting, your money is going to be worth more than it ever has as a traveler. Um, you are going to have so much power and and you have a responsibility, but hopefully you also have a desire to use that incredible power that you will have on this um, international industry that is definitely going to be struggling to to buy buy local, buy sustainable, and buy conscientiously. That almost concludes our interview, and I think I think we just have one question left, which is I like to ask everybody uh, what their favorite tool is. So here's Adams. Well. Wow. I can't. I can't go without saying that a shovel isn't my favorite tool. I was a. I was a tree planter back in 1998. My wife and I. That's our first summer together. We tree planted in BC. That solidified our relationship. And we still both have our tree planting shovels and use them in our garden on a daily basis. That is our favorite tool we own. Yeah. No. Our shovels. We we live and die by those shovels, right? Like the the, the experiences that we had. With those shovels, they, they were there by our side, so we love them like they're one of us. Yes, you take care, and then best of luck with uh, this podcast and everything you're up to at the Guelph Tool Library. It sounds amazing.